from New York, this is Democracy Now! UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, is about to run out of supplies, including fuel that is needed for incubators and life support machines in hospitals. It's needed for bakeries. It's needed for water pumping. If we run out of fuel, we will not be able to deliver any humanitarian assistance. Gaza is being strangled. That's the latest warning from the United Nations about the dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza. As Palestinian authorities say over 7,300 people have now been killed in Israel's 21-day bombardment. We'll speak to a top UNRWA official. That's the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, which is sheltering over 600,000 displaced Gazans. Then we speak to an Israeli man who helped negotiate a prisoner swap with Hamas in 2011 that freed the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit after five years. We'll also speak to New York University law student Rena Workman, who lost a job at a prestigious law firm after speaking up for Palestinian rights. The biggest message I want to tell everyone right now is that no one should be punished for speaking out for Palestinian human rights. And the backlash we're seeing against me is creating a much larger and much more intense chilling effect for other students. And I think that in this moment, we need to be able to feel empowered to speak up and call for a ceasefire and end this genocide. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations has warned many more Palestinians will die due to catastrophic shortages of food, water and medicine, as Israel's nonstop bombardment of the Gaza Strip entered its 21st day. Earlier today, Philippe Lazzarini, the head of the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA, warned his agency's operations are crumbling as Gazans starve. He called Israel's siege collective punishment of more than two million people, a majority of whom are women and children. And he said the mere 84 aid trucks that Israel has so far allowed to cross into Gaza is totally inadequate to address the needs of the population. These fuel trucks are nothing more than a crumbs that will not make a difference for the two million people in the street. We should avoid conveying the message that fuel trucks a day means the siege is lifted for humanitarian aid. This is not true. Gaza's health ministry has published the names of more than 6,700 Palestinians killed since Israel launched its assault on the Gaza Strip three, we three weeks ago. The 200-plus page report lists the name, age, gender and ID number of each victim of the bombardment. The toll does not include the names of 281 people whose bodies could not be identified, bringing the toll to more than 7,000. Nor does it include more than 1,500 Palestinians missing and believed to be trapped under the rubble. 2,665 children are listed among the dead. The ministry made the names public after President Biden Wednesday cast doubt on Gaza's official death toll. I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. Omar Shaker of Human Rights Watch said his organization has always found data from the Gaza Ministry of Health reliable. He said that until quite recently, even the U.S. State Department cited the ministry's data without caveat. 
I think it's worth noting that this creates a fog of war, a fog of misinformation, which can provide political cover for more large-scale atrocities to take place. The conversation should focus on how world leaders can stop further mass atrocities and not nitpicking whether a number that's generally proven to be accurate may be a little bit off. Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael al-Dadu, returned to the airwaves on Thursday, a day after an Israeli airstrike killed 12 members of his family. Dadu resumed broadcasting from a Gaza rooftop hours after he led prayers at a funeral for his wife, son, daughter, grandson, and other relatives. I saw it as my duty to get back to work as quickly as possible, despite everything. Because as you can see, the bombardment is still ongoing. There are airstrikes and artillery shelling, and things continue to develop. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports at least 27 journalists have been killed since October 7th, four Israelis, one Lebanese, and 22 Palestinians. European Union leaders called Thursday for a humanitarian pause in Israel's bombardment of Gaza, but stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen reaffirmed EU support for Israel, saying it had the right to self-defense in line with international law. She also blamed Hamas for provoking the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Her remarks came after Human Rights Watch director Tarana Hassan condemned both Hamas and Israel for targeting innocent civilians. Hassan testified on Wednesday to the European Parliament Subcommittee on Human Rights. You cannot wipe out entire families, let a health system be destroyed, raise entire districts to the ground, refer to people as animals. You can't punish an entire population for, by preventing desperately needed aid from reaching them. International humanitarian law is clear. Atrocities from one side do not justify atrocities from the other side. At an emergency session of the U.N. General Assembly in New York, the Palestinian envoy to the United Nations, Riyad Mansour, pleaded with representatives to vote in favor of a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and the increased delivery of humanitarian aid. Vote to stop the killing. Vote for humanitarian aid to reach those whose very survival depends on it. Vote to stop this madness. The U.N. General Assembly's 193 member states are voting on the non-binding resolution today after the U.S. repeatedly vetoed Security Council resolutions calling for a ceasefire. The Pentagon says U.S. forces attacked two facilities in Syria linked to Iranian armed groups in response to earlier attacks on U.S. military personnel in Iraq and Syria. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the U.S. strikes were not connected to the conflict in Israel and Palestine. 900 U.S. troops are also headed to the Middle East. This is Pentagon Press Secretary Patrick Ryder. While I won't talk specific deployment locations for these forces, I can confirm that they are not going to Israel, and that again, they are intended to support regional deterrence efforts and further bolster U.S. force protection capabilities. 
Florida's state university system, in collaboration with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, has issued a memo ordering college campuses to shut down a Palestinian Solidarity student organization. Florida officials accuse Students for Justice in Palestine of providing harmful support for terrorist groups, unquote. Palestine Legal, which defends the free speech of Palestinian rights activists, said in a statement the memo was, quote, filled with erroneous factual and legal claims that seek to distract from, distort and silence the message of student activists across the United States, the same way Israeli propaganda has sought to distract public attention from ongoing Israeli war crimes, Palestine Legal wrote. Meanwhile, Governor DeSantis said Thursday he's made arrangements to send drones, weapons and ammunition to Israel as it prepares for a ground invasion of Gaza. We'll speak with the head of Palestine Legal later in the broadcast. In Mexico, at least 27 people were killed and several others are missing in and around Acapulco after Hurricane Otis ripped through Mexico's Pacific coast, knocking out all communications and leaving behind a trail of destruction. The Category 5 storm was the strongest East Pacific hurricane on record to make landfall with 165-mile-per-hour winds. A local camera person who filmed the devastating aftermath in Acapulco recounted living through the hurricane. There was a moment when the building was moving from side to side. Water was coming in. Water was entering. You could still hear a thousand and one things thundering up, down, left, right. Everything. Everything was thundering. And then I remember that Barbara and I hugged each other and began to pray. We began to say goodbye with telepathy, literally, because we could not send messages. In Panama, nationwide indigenous-led protests and blockades intensified this week, demanding the government reverse its approval of a 20-year contract for a foreign-owned open-pit copper mine. Police fired tear gas at demonstrators who say the mine will poison freshwater sources. They also cited corruption allegations against lawmakers. Dozens have been arrested. Opponents say the new contract for the Cobre Panama mine was fast-tracked with little public input or transparency. The mine is the largest in Central America. It's owned by Canada's first quantum minerals. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken welcomed his Chinese counterpart to Washington, D.C. on Thursday as the Biden administration seeks to repair fraught ties with Beijing. Foreign Minister Wang Yi spoke briefly to reporters before his meeting with Blinken at the State Department. Through dialogue, we can increase understanding, reduce misunderstanding and misjudgments, constantly seek to expand common ground and pursue cooperation that will benefit both sides. Wang Yi's trip to Washington, D.C. came after California's Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom held a surprise meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing on Wednesday. Newsom said after the talks he hoped the United States and China are at a turning point in their relations. And in Maine, the manhunt continues for the suspect in Wednesday night shooting rampage that killed 18 people and wounded 13 others in Lewiston, Maine's second largest city. Residents have been instructed to continue sheltering in place while many schools remain closed today, including uh, schools like Bates and the Portland public school system. 
the suspect, 40-year-old Robert Card, is a white Army reservist firearms trainer who was hospitalized in a mental health facility over the summer after he threatened to shoot up a National Guard base in New York. Investigators are reportedly looking into whether the shooter was targeting his partner or former partner. Maine does not require permits to carry guns, does not require background checks, and has no red flags. On social media, one of Maine's most prominent residents, the author Stephen King, wrote, it's the rapid-fire killing machines, people. This is madness in the name of freedom. Stop electing apologists for murder, unquote. On Thursday, Maine Democratic Congress member Jared Golden, a Marine Corps veteran who lives in Lewiston, said the massacre had changed his views on gun control. I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war, like the assault rifle we used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles like the one used by the sick perpetrator of this mass killing in my hometown of Lewiston, Maine. In another mass shooting, police on Thursday found five people fatally shot in Clinton, North Carolina, suspect a motive have not yet been identified. There have been close to 600 mass shootings in the United States this year alone. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Gaza's being strangled. That's the latest warning from the United Nations about the dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza, as Palestinian authorities say over 7,300 people have now been killed in Israel's 21-day bombardment. More than 1,000 Palestinians are believed to still be trapped under the rubble of buildings leveled by Israeli airstrikes and shelling. Earlier today, the head of UNRWA, that's the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, called for far more aid to be allowed into Gaza through the Rafah border crossing. This is UNRWA head Philippe Lazzarini. As we speak, people in Gaza are dying. They are not only dying from bombs and strike. Soon, many more will die from the consequences of siege imposed on the Gaza Strip. Basic services are crumbling, medicine is running out, food and water are running out, the streets of Gaza have started overflowing with sewage, Gaza is on the brink of a massive health hazard at the risk of diseases alarming. More than 600,000 displaced Palestinians are now living in UNRWA shelters, but the agency says its operations are crumbling due to a lack of supplies. The United Nations says at least 12 hospitals in Gaza have been forced to stop operations, as have about two-thirds of Gaza's 72 primary health clinics. We go now to Amman, Jordan, where we're joined by UNRWA spokesperson Tamara Arifa. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Tamara. Can you talk about the situation in Gaza right now, what UNRWA is dealing with? No words can describe what the Gazans are dealing with. They are living a humanitarian situation of colossal magnitude. Let's remember that we're talking about 2.2 million people living on the Strip. One million of them are already displaced from the north of the Gaza Strip to the south, cramped in UNRWA schools and other buildings that were not ready to receive such a huge amount of people, many of them having lost their homes, their loved ones, and their families. Inside these shelters, 
the conditions are really unsanitary because we're not able to produce sufficient clean water for people to drink and bathe themselves because we don't have fuel for the water desalination plants. We also do not have sufficient medicines and sufficient food to nourish, to give all these people. So we are truly facing a big, a huge humanitarian crisis. And UNRWA, on top of it, has already lost 57 staff members. So I have lost 57 colleagues, some of them killed in the line of duty while they were helping others in Gaza. Can you talk about these trucks that are supposedly of aid coming through the border? Um, they said that they were going to allow many more. There's just been a trickle of trucks. How many trucks and how much aid is needed and what exactly is needed? Are we actually talking about four and five hundred a day that are needed? And we're talking about possibly eight trucks going over the border. Yes, Amy, we're talking about a trickle. We're also talking about a drop of aid going in after shuttle diplomacy, marathons of political meetings at the highest level. What UNRWA is calling for, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, is an immediate humanitarian ceasefire and a continuous, unimpeded and safe flow of aid. Eight trucks a day today, 12 yesterday, 20 the day before, can these really be sufficient for a population of 2.2 million people all stranded under complete seal? For context, before this crisis, and even then nothing was normal, 500 trucks used to come into the Gaza Strip from Eretz, from Israel, and from Rafah, from Egypt. A hundred of these trucks contained humanitarian and food assistance because already before this conflict, 70% of people in Gaza relied on food assistance from the UN and lived under the poverty line. So really, a handful of trucks every day does nothing in the face of the immense needs in food, water, medical supplies, medicine, and mostly fuel. Fuel has been completely barred. So if we at UNRWA do not get fuel in the coming day or so, we will no longer be able to support hospitals and their life-saving machines and incubators, to support bakeries with bread who are, that are making bread, which is the only um, food that most Gazans are taking, are, are having. And we're not able, we're not going to be able to support the desalination plants that brings clean water to people. And mostly speaking of trucks, we need fuel to be able to pick up the supplies from the Rafah crossing. All this is at risk of total collapse if we do not get fuel. Tamara El-Rafai, how do you respond to the Israeli government saying that if they allow fuel in, it will be stolen by Hamas? I respond by saying we're a credible humanitarian UN agency with very high due diligence standards and that we receive the fuel ourselves and store it in our warehouses and deliver it to our partners directly. We have a whole system that the Israelis know about that ensures 
that everything that we receive as UNRWA is used strictly for humanitarian purposes. We're talking to Tamara Rafai, who is uh, a spokesperson uh, for uh, UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestine Refugees. Can you specifically talk about a situation in, for example, one of your hospitals? Explain who's there. I mean, the fact that UNRWA, that there are 600,000 of the 2.4 or 2.3 million Palestinians, you are responsible taking refuge in your facilities? I would like you to visualize a school, any regular school, that usually receives 2,000 kids. And then think of that school as a place where six or seven or 8,000 people, entire families, now live. It is a place that is not ready in terms of logistics and facilities and toilets and showers and access to electricity and water to receive 8,000 people. What we have done is, for the sake of some privacy, especially for women and girls, we have put the women and girls in the classrooms where they can close a door and the men and boys in the courtyards. These people rely 100% on our ability to provide electricity, water, food, and medical attention to them while they're in our shelters. Shelters are overcrowded. We're already facing major public health risks because of that overcrowding and the lack of access of people to water and to the ability to wash themselves. You spoke about hospitals. My colleague visited this morning Al-Shifa Hospital. That's the biggest hospital in Gaza and the, one, the oldest also, and the one that usually receives complex, more complicated um, cases. And during conflicts, it receives the war wounded. My colleague told me about dead bodies lying in the corridors, on the floor. There are no more body bags available in the hospital. There is almost no electricity, save for a few hours a day. The doctors are operating with the light from their cell phones. Entire families are now living in that hospital in the middle of an emergency room because they thought that going to the hospital or going to a UN, an UNRWA building, will give them protection. While in reality, until now, 42 of our buildings are shelters that are supposed to be protected with the blue UN flag were damaged during the fighting. Seven of these buildings received a direct hit. I wanted to play for you what uh, Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn called for, the defunding of your organization, UNRWA. Whether it is the U.N. Relief and Work Agency for Palestinian Refugees or uh, any of the other entities that are involved with aid, Hamas is getting the money. We know from the Relief Agency that they have that $730 billion that has gone in there. This agency has hired Hamas-affiliated individuals. We know Hamas has stolen that money. We know that they have hidden weaponry in the facilities of this agency that are located there in Gaza. So letting them have access to these funds is not a smart thing to do. That's Tennessee Republican Senator um, uh, Marsha Blackburn. Can you respond to her allegation? I can respond by saying that every single person who works at UNRWA or 
receives UNRWA assistance is checked against the UN Security Council sanctions list. And that as a UN agency, we are bound by the values and principles of the UN, mostly the principles of humanity, independence, um, independence from any political party and neutrality. We've heard these allegations We've heard we, and we hear them routinely, but we do prove every time how UNRWA is principled, how it reaches people in need. We report back on all the funds we receive from every government, the U.S. government included. And in fact, the U.S. is currently our largest donor. It is back to being our largest donor after several years of defunding under the previous administration. And we're extremely grateful for the uh, cooperation and the good working relations we now have with the U.S. government, to whom we always give back full reports in transparency about all our operations, our, activity, our activities, the location of our operations, and how we spend U.S. taxpayers' money. Tamara Rafai, finally, how do you respond to this controversy over the health ministry's numbers around the death toll. Um, President Biden raised it, said you can't trust it because it's run by Hamas. Um, we quoted Omar Shakir of uh, Human Rights Watch saying, not only has Human Rights Watch re relied on these figures and the United Nations, but the State Department itself has cited these numbers. Absolutely. And by the way, Omar Shakir and Tirana Hassan are my former colleagues, and I very much subscribe to what I heard on this show by them. It is true that the Ministry of Health has always provided figures that international uh, groups and, and policy think tanks and researchers and governments have used. In any large catastrophe, even if it's a, um, a natural catastrophe, the figures cannot be exact science during the catastrophe. We will always give or take a few tens but we will always also have a, an idea of the scale and scope. So it is a few thousands and many more numbers will come up once we have the full picture and all these bodies are removed from under the rubble. Tamara Al-Rafai, we want to thank you for being with us. Spokesperson for UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestine Refugees, speaking to us from Amman, Jordan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to an update on a past guest who appeared on Democracy Now! An Israeli airstrike has killed five members of his family. That's the family of the Gazan poet, journalist and peace activist Ahmed Abu Arthama, who survived the blast but was seriously injured. The dead include his 12-year-old son. He helped inspire the Great March of Return, a series of weekly nonviolent protests in Gaza that began in 2018. Israel responded to the protests by killing over 200 protesters, including 46 children. Artema recently wrote an article for The Nation magazine headlined, Gaza is being killed. We desperately need your help.
Artima wrote, quote, Israel sent us a clear message when it responded to our peaceful protests with such bloodshed. It doesn't matter if you attempt to achieve your demands nonviolently. We will kill you and deny you your rights regardless, he wrote. In 2019, I interviewed him in our studio here in New York. When I and uh, some of my friends invited to the March of Return, uh, a lot of people uh, answered this call because it was a scream for life. It it was uh, uh, it it was uh, 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 expressed the will uh, the will of, of, of life in, in in our hearts, Palestinians. Uh, the Palestinians in Gaza uh, are actually in in a real prison. They live in a real prison. And they are without any of uh, of the basic conditions of the uh, human life. And before that, 75 percent of the Palestinians inside Gaza they are refugees. That means their or, uh, their origin villages and towns uh, uh, are beyond the fence, the Israeli fence. So, uh, so uh, uh, when when tens of thousands of Palestinians shared in the march of return, they want to say uh, that we 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 never uh, gave up our right to return this is our normal right and this right based on the united nations resolution 194 and from other side they wanted to say they, they want they wanted to say that we want life and nothing but life we are actually here inside gaza prison we are dying we are dying because of the uh, no medicine no food, no work, no jobs, uh, no factories. Hundreds of factories were destroyed in the last uh, 10 years by Israeli attacks. So uh, th this, th those people uh, uh, search of, uh, of hope. They want hope. They, they want dignified life. The March of Return is a, is a scream uh, of life, is a knock on the door. When, when there is a, a person inside a prison without food, without medicine, then he hasn't any choice but to knock the door, but to, to try to escape towards the life. Th this is exactly what the Palestinians made in Gaza. They, uh, they, they said to Israel, uh, our will of life is stronger than despair. So we continue, we, we, we want to, 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 to struggle, and we struggle for life. We struggle for humanity. We struggle for justice. And so people are protesting. They're engaging in this weekly mass protest, and you've been met by massive response of the Israeli military. Yeah. Um, talk about what happens in these Friday protests around the fence. Yeah. Yeah, some people asked me, and some journalists asked me, why uh, why the Palestinians continued their protesting uh, despite the high the high price of victims and injured people. I answered them: the Palestinians continue is con are continuing their uh, uh, protesting because this is their only choice. They have ha haven't other choices. Uh, uh, they, they try to uh, they, they try to escape towards the life. 
life. Uh, so the people, uh, when the people uh, shared in, in the march of return in these protests, they uh, they came to the uh, near the near the fence that separated them from their uh, their villages and and uh, and cities, uh, and the people collect peacefully. That was the Gazan poet, journalist, and peace activist Ahmed Abu Artima speaking on Democracy Now! in 2019. An Israeli airstrike has killed five members of his family. He was seriously injured. Coming up, we'll speak to an Israeli man who helped negotiate a prisoner swap with Hamas in 2011 that freed the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit after five years in exchange for the freedom of more than 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. Back in a minute. <laughs> هل كان عندهم بيت وصوره عليها ناس معلقين بخيط وقعوا عن السطوح العمر Those Who Had a Home by Sabrine. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Israeli military has announced it now believes 229 hostages are being held by Hamas and other militant groups in Gaza. The hostages were seized on October 7th, when Hamas carried out a shocking attack that Israel says killed about 1,400 people. Hamas has released four hostages so far. On Thursday, Hamas officials claimed the Israeli bombardment of Gaza has already killed 50 of the hostages, but the group did not provide any evidence to back up this claim. A Hamas official who's part of a delegation visiting Moscow says the group will not release any more hostages until Israel halts the airstrikes. Meanwhile, families of the hostages continue to call for their loved ones to be safely returned. This is Hadass Calderon in Tel Aviv. Five members of my family have been kidnapped. Five. My mom, my niece, two children, Erez Sar, and their father, Ofer. A, a week ago, I was announced, I got the information that my mom and my niece have been murdered. I didn't have time to grave and to go to the funeral. Today, a week after, I went up to the grave. So today I was crying and graving. <laughs> And now I'm, I'm celebrating, you know, this, it's a surrealistic situation. We are celebrating uh, my son, Erez, is 12 years old, today. We're celebrating his birthday. Uh, he, he loves the mountain bike, and uh, uh, his father also is very professional in, in uh, riding bike. So uh, that's what you see, and I wish he could be here to enjoy with everybody and to feel like a normal boy. 
We're joined now in Jerusalem by Gershon Baskin. He is Middle East director of the International Communities Organization Human Rights Advocacy Group. In 2011, he helped negotiate the release of the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit from Hamas captivity uh, after five years in exchange for the release of 1,027 Palestinian prisoners. His memoir is, is called In Pursuit of Peace in Israel and Palestine. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Gershom Baskin. If you can say what you think needs to happen right now. What needs to happen is what Hamas spoke about already two weeks ago, which is a release of what they call the civilian hostages in exchange for an immediate ceasefire. That's what Hamas has been saying since yesterday, and yesterday there was a change of tone from Musa Abu Marzouk, is the Hamas official who's, who went to Moscow. I communicated with Dr. Musa Abu Marzouk yesterday, who for the first time said, there needs to be a ceasefire first, and then we'll talk about the hostages. Right now, Hamas is holding women, children, elderly people, wounded and sick people, who it's obviously against uh, international humanitarian law to hold them, to abduct them, to kill them. It's also against Islam. It's against their own beliefs in the Quran to take women and children and elderly people as hostages. Uh, I think that uh, Israel is prepared to grant a ceasefire to stop the uh, bombardment of Gaza uh, and to enable uh, civilian hostages to come home. We have to be clear also who we're talking about, because for Hamas, every Israeli is a soldier. So it needs to be defined who they are talking about when they're talking about civilians. But there's a big complication here, because Hamas is probably not holding all the hostages. The Hamas political leadership, which is scattered between Gaza, Beirut, and Doha, is not in charge of the hostages, and it's not clear that when they make an obligation, say to the Qatari government that they are willing to negotiate some kind of deal, that they are actually able to implement the deal. Uh, there's a big question about it, of who is talking to the people who have control of the hostages, and whether or not Hamas at all has control of all the hostages, because some were taken by Islamic Jihad, some by PFLP, and some by individuals who are holding hostages. Talk about your back channels, Gershon, to Hamas, to Egypt, and to Qatar. I've been talking to everyone. I've been talking to Hamas people in Gaza, in Qatar, and in Beirut. Um, it's a very difficult conversation. And my assessment today, three weeks into this war, is that they don't have a coherent strategy. They're not all giving the same messages. And as I said, I'm not sure that they even have control. The Qataris were talking quite a lot, wanted direct contact with the Israelis. Myself and a colleague who's in Rome put them in direct contact with the Israelis. It's not sure who they're talking to on the Israeli side and if the people they're talking to the Israeli side are actually sitting in the war cabinet making the decisions. It seems that the side with the best contact are the Egyptians. The Egyptians were responsible for releasing the second two women who are Israelis without second passports. They're Israeli Israelis, members of a kibbutz along the Gaza border. One of them has been a peace activist and a volunteer driver of sick Palestinian children from Gaza to Israeli hospitals for years. 
And it seems that they were released as a result of Egyptian pressure on Al-Qassam, on the military wing of Hamas. That was Yocheved Lipschitz, who also spoke to the press after she was released. Uh, Her husband is still in, also well-known as a peace activist who went to the border crossing repeatedly to help Palestinians, and especially those who um, were having medical problems. That's right. So— How did the first two hostages get released? And do you see anything large happening now? So I think my my understanding of what happened with the two sets of women who were released is that the first one was the result of direct pressure of President Biden and Secretary Blinken on the Qatari government, who applied pressure on the political leadership of Hamas, who is hosted in Qatar. And they and, and President Biden mentioned their names, specifically their American citizens who live in Chicago. I believe that the second set of the two women who were released was a result of the Egyptians wanting to show that they could do better than Qatar in releasing two elderly women who are full Israeli citizens without another uh, passport. The Israelis weren't involved in either releases at all. They had no part of it. And Israel didn't pay anything for those releases. I really think this is some kind of negotiating game and the competition that exists between Qatar and and, uh, Egypt. I think that the Israelis are holding off on the ground incursion of thousands of Israeli troops, tanks and artillery and special forces in order to exhaust every possibility to bring out as many hostages through negotiations. This seems to me the reason why the Israeli delay on the incursions. In the meantime, Israel is going in with small forces. Uh, for two nights now, they've done this to, uh, I think, assess the situation on the ground to take care of specific intelligence information they have about Hamas battle plans once the incursion begins, and probably with special forces to see if they can find any of the hostages. And how important is U.S. pressure on them to uh, to delay the invasion or to stop it altogether? And do you see the U.S. putting that kind of pressure? Originally, President Biden said he was not telling Netanyahu to use any kind of restraint. Right. So so Israelis and, and others, Americans, have said that the Americans are encouraging Israel to wait and to exhaust every possibility for negotiations, to wait with the ground operation. I think it has been influential, but uh, there are more and more voices in Israel who are calling to the Israeli government to recognize their moral responsibility to the hostages, because the, the number one function and responsibility of any state is to protect its citizens, and Israel clearly failed to protect these civilians who live along the Gaza border uh, and, and enabled them to be murdered and to be taken hostage. So there are calls, significant calls from, from Israelis, not, not like me on, on the left, but from the center of Israel's society, from the national security establishment, who are saying that Israel first has a responsibility to bring home the hostages. There are even several of them, including a former head of the Mossad, who said that Israel should even empty out all of its prison prisons and send all the Palestinian prisoners to Gaza in exchange for all the hostages being released. I I can't see that happening. But I think that there is more time, although not a lot, for a negotiated agreement for a release of the civilian hostages. I think it's important to note that the American government is and should be uh, placing pressure on Qatar. Qatar has been the host of the Hamas leadership for many years. It has funded Hamas with more than a billion dollars over the years. And Qatar, if it doesn't comply with American demands to put pressure on Hamas, Qatar should threaten the Hamas leadership that if they don't comply, if they don't pressure their own people back in Gaza, that they will be exiled from their welcome stay in 
in Qatar. And Qatar, is, by hosting Hamas, is in a way a state that's supporting terrorism. Uh, Gershon Baskin, I wanted to ask you about a number of the hostage families um, and families of those um, Israelis who Hamas killed on October 7th, like um, uh, Chaim Katzman, uh, who was a University of Washington graduate student, came back to the kibbutz. Um, he was trying to protect others. He was in a closet, and he was killed. We spoke both to his Seattle rabbi, where he was a Hebrew school teacher uh, in Seattle, and his brother Noy, who is in Vienna, in Austria, both called for an end to the occupation and said the invasion is not the answer to what has happened. Your final thoughts on what needs to happen now? Yeah, I, th I, I hope that after the Israelis people are experiencing the biggest trauma since the Holocaust and the Palestinians have been taken back to 1948 in the Nakba, that we wake up from this traumatic situation and understand first the Israelis that to delude ourselves that we can occupy another people for 56, 56 years and have peace is simply not real, or that we can lock 2 million people in an open-air prison for 17 years and expect to have quiet, is living in, a, in an imaginary world of, of delusion. I hope that the Palestinian people wake up and understand that they will never have peace if they don't recognize the Jewish people's right to live in the land of Israel as well as their right to live in the land of Palestine. And that when this ends, I call it the day after after tomorrow, because tomorrow is too soon. But the day after tomorrow, I've been calling for what um, the metaphor I use is the Belfast moment. The moment when we stand up and say we've been killing each other for 100 years and we have to stop. Our leaders need to pay the price for bringing us here, Israeli leaders and Palestinian leaders. They all need to go. And we need a new generation of Israelis and Palestinians who are willing to stand up with new ideas, new visions, new hopes, new dreams, and the ability to lead us forward on the very basic principle that everyone living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea must have the same right to the same rights. That is the basic principle from which we have to start. And from there, we can decide if we want one state, two states, three states, or 10 states, a federation or a confederation. But it begins with the mutual recognition that we all must have the same right to the same rights. Ershan Baskin is Middle East Director of the International Communities Organization, a human rights advocacy group. In 2011, he helped negotiate the release of the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit from Hamas captivity in exchange for more than 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. His memoir is titled In Pursuit of Peace in Israel and Palestine. Next up, we speak to New York University law school student Rena Workman who lost her job at a prestigious law firm, lost their job at a prestigious law firm after speaking up for Palestinian rights back in 20 seconds. Hey, <laughs> 
الأولى بالأم والأخيرة بالنوم هذا مني إلك يا إمرأة يا إمي البيت مني أنا الرجل Freedom for my sisters by the world's first Palestinian hip-hop group DAM. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at how students, professors, and others advocating for Palestinian rights across the United States are facing racist attacks and other threats to their free speech, safety, and livelihoods. This week, Florida ordered state universities to ban the group Students for Justice in Palestine, accusing it of supporting a terrorist organization. The group Palestine Legal is documenting and supporting people who were fired or faced other retaliation for sharing social media posts or signing statements in support of human rights for Palestine. This includes our next guest, Rena Workman, who was removed from their position as president of the NYU Law School's Student Bar Association, and saw their job offer at the corporate law firm Winston & Strawn withdrawn after they sent a newsletter to classmates expressing, quote, unwavering and absolute solidarity with Palestinians and their resistance against oppression toward liberation and self-determination, unquote, after Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. Um, and the uh, subsequent number of Palestinians who died in these last weeks. On Thursday, the Senate unanimously passed a resolution, quote, condemning Hamas and anti-Semitic student activities on college campuses, unquote, which referenced Rena, though not by name. This comes as doxing trucks target people at Ivy League universities who sign Palestinian solidarity statements, now appeared at Harvard, at Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, with digital billboard screens displaying people's faces, their names, and above them saying, anti-Semites. Palestine Legal and over 600 other legal groups and leaders issued a letter calling unelected officials and institutional leaders to address the, quote, hundreds of incidents happening across the country that signal a much broader effort to criminalize dissent, justify censorship and incite anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab and anti-Muslim harassment, unquote. The letter notes this is not a new phenomenon, but it's escalating at terrifying speed, unquote. For more, we're joined in Chicago by Dima Khalidi, the founder and director of Palestine Legal, and by Rena Workman, the NYU law student who had their prestigious job offer rescinded. Um, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Rena, why don't we start with you? What exactly happened? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think that, you know, I sent a message to my fellow law students supporting Palestine and offering context to a narrative that I already saw building that was excluding, you know, the 75 years of history that we've seen in Palestine, the apartheid, the military occupation. And I wanted to, you know, add that I support Palestinians in their movement for liberation. And that is what my message was intended to get across. And what happened? You know, after that, we saw this incredibly swift backlash. Um, I lost my job offer. You know, my school immediately put out statements that distanced themselves from me, offered me no specific protections um, publicly. And, you know, I've been receiving hateful and racist and transphobic and queerphobic messages um, for the past three weeks that have only gotten more vile and more hateful as time has gone on. And what about your position both at NYU and uh, your offer of a prestigious law firm employment? Yeah, I think that, you know, the consequences that I'm personally facing 
are, you know, devastating for me. But I'm also really concerned that it's just promoting this chilling effect that we're seeing across not only my law school, but across universities and other law schools across the country, because folks are now afraid to speak up in fear that they might, you know, become the next me, that they might lose their offer simply for supporting Palestine and fighting this oppression and trying to end this genocide. So what do you say to the law firm now? And have they reconsidered? The law firm has not reached out to me at all. And right now, I really just want to focus on, you know, calling for a ceasefire and ending this genocide. And I really just want to say to everyone who cares about human life and cares about, you know, stopping uh, this killing to, to call for a ceasefire and, you know, and end this genocide that's happening right now to the Palestinians. I want to bring uh, Dima Halliday into this conversation. How common is what happened to Rena Workman? It's uh, become very common. Uh, Palestine Legal has been documenting for years what we call a Palestine exception to free speech. So it certainly didn't start on October 7th. We've seen these same kinds of tactics, severe doxing, attempts to get people fired and investigated to punish uh, boycotts for Palestinian rights and other advocacy through legislation and and uh, a, a, an attempt to purge academia of voices that support Palestinian rights. But since October 7th, when we've seen people mobilizing for Palestinian rights, we've seen an exponential increase. We uh, We've had more than 300 requests for legal help, more than we get in a whole year, typically. And uh, Rina is, is really not alone. And we're seeing dozens, dozens of people getting fired and facing employment consequences around the country for making simple statements in support of Palestinian rights. We're seeing students get disciplined. As you mentioned, Amy, um, there are there is a widespread attack on the student movement for Palestinian rights, which has uh, built uh, uh, an incredible cross-movement uh, um, uh, has built cross-movement alliances on campuses for the last decade. And uh, really, people's livelihoods are being threatened and people's lives are also under attack. We saw a six-year-old Palestinian boy murdered just for being Palestinian. So this is a widespread effort to intimidate, as Rina said, intimidate people into silence. But Rina is also not alone in the sense that there are so many voices who are speaking out because people are seeing more and more clearly what is happening here. This is about 75 plus years of a settler colonial state that has dispossessed an entire people of their land and of their dignity and of their humanity. And what is happening now is a complete dehumanization of Palestinians that is coming from the mouths of Israeli officials, which, by the way, have been speaking in genocidal terms about Palestinians for 75 plus years. And it's being echoed by our own elected officials repeating to level Gaza and to uh, wipe uh, wipe Palestinians off of the map. This is a genocide that is unfolding with U.S. support. And more people are seeing that. And, and that's what's critical here. We have to speak up. We have to protect people who are under attack for speaking out, uh, because that is our responsibility as U.S. citizens whose taxpayer money is being used to fuel this incredible 
uh, attack on, on Palestinians. Can you talk about what's happening in Florida? Uh, Governor DeSantis uh, demanding of the state university system to disband uh, the organization, um, uh, the Palestinian student organization, Students for Justice in Palestine? Of course, uh, DeSantis is often uh, the front runner when we're talking about uh, uh, undermining our constitutional rights. And once again, uh, he has attacked a student group uh, uh, based on their fundamental First Amendment rights to engage in advocacy on this issue. His move uh, is fundamentally contrary to the First Amendment, and uh, it will be challenged. There is no doubt. Um, this is also an attempt to criminalize what uh, students and others are are, are speaking out about. Um, and there is no basis for this. And frankly, it's part of DeSantis's broader agenda and the right wing's broader agenda to undermine fundamental First Amendment rights by criminalizing protests for racial justice, by criminalizing protests for environmental rights and indigenous rights, and uh, by purging academia um, of people and cur curricula that are trying to teach about the sordid history of racism in this country. Uh, so it is part of his effort to whitewash uh, uh, our, our uh, universities and academia from dissenting voices. And uh, this has to be challenged in order for us to maintain the fundamental constitutional rights upon which this country is based and and that are essential for any uh, any uh, uh, prospect of maintaining democracy in this country. I mean, it's been interesting what's happened. You've got the doxing of students, for example, at Harvard and at, um, at Columbia. At Harvard, the more traditional conservative organization, Harvard Hillel, actually also condemned the doxing of students and these billboards that are going around with protesters' faces with the word anti-Semite above it. And at Columbia, is it true that um, the um, pro-Israel and the Palestine groups together condemned the doxing? The doxing is one of the most uh, uh, heinous ways of attacking people. Um, these are students, these are individuals who are, you know, working in various arenas, and, and they are being severely harassed. Their information is being publicized. They are, uh, they are being uh, uh, barraged, as Rena has, with death threats and horrible, misogynistic, transphobic, and racist messages, uh, and, and their livelihoods are being threatened. So we have seen uh, uh, pro, even pro-Israel groups uh, uh, condemn this because they see how, uh, how horrible it is for their own peers mm -hmm. to be faced with this, uh, with this kind of harassment. And, and universities are really failing to protect their students here. Uh, we've seen a couple of instances where universities are beginning to take measures to, to prevent this doxy. And finally, Rena Workman, uh, your final comment. Also, who ousted you as president of NYU's Law School Bar Association? So the SBA, the Student Bar Association, originally initiated proceedings against me 
but since have all resigned. But currently, due to messaging from Dean McKenzie, I am suspended until further notice from all of my presidential duties. And so even though I cannot, you know, say anything or do anything as SBA president, I still want to say as a person that we should all be calling for a ceasefire and an end to this genocide. Rena Workman, I want to thank you for being with us. NYU law student who had a job offer rescinded after speaking out in support of Palestinian rights and calling for a ceasefire. And Dima Khalidi, founder of Palestine Legal. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>